Welcome to the Great Bays Tennis Podcast, episode 105. So we're starting year number three. Different format tonight. I'm flying solo. Mark Hamlin, someone I grew up with. Mark Hamlin jokes. Smith, you need to sing solo. No one can hear you. Better off if you were to sing 10 or 10 or 12 miles down the road. I'm going to try to streamline the format. We had a great guest tonight, Ed Weiss. I'm going to call him up. He has a great background in tennis, lifetime in tennis. I would consider him, and this is an honor, a tennis junkie. I was a guest at his house. I just know the library. Uh, he's a student of the game. We're going to talk about many things, but one is also, uh, he's the author of the book uh, written on Welby Van Horn. And what we're trying to do with the podcast is reinforce the messages from our eight pillars. But let me call Ed on the phone. And I'm going to do this without any mistakes. My tech savvy. EW. All at once. There's the first ring. Hello. Ed Weiss, Steve Smith, thanks for being a guest on the Great Base Tennis Podcast. Uh, well, it is my honor that you uh, asked me. Yes, I know you love tennis. You've been in the game your whole life, one way or the other. Uh, why don't we start to uh, get this thing rolling? Uh, tell us about your entry into tennis, early days. Sure. Well, I grew up in, in, in Great Neck, which is a town on uh, Long Island in New York. And my first love was baseball. Uh, my parents um, encouraged me maybe to try to try tennis, but I said, I'm not interested in that sport. All I want to do is play baseball. Um, but I did go to a general camp uh, in the summer. And uh, one summer, I decided I was going to try tennis. And the head tennis counselor there was a gentleman named Larry LeBeau, who um, during the non-summer uh months was a math teacher at Trinity School and uh, flash forward a number of years he was John McEnroe's high school tennis team coach but Larry absolutely loved tennis and he was a very quiet guy in some ways but he was very inspiring um, he loved uh, to read about tennis and tell us the stories about tennis players um, and I got the tennis bug um, largely I think because he was so good about introducing uh, kids to tennis at the camp. Uh, and I've been lucky enough to have a lot of really great mentors through the years. And he was the first one. And, and, and how, how old were you at this time? And when, what, what, uh, reference the time? Was this what, was, 70s? I get when I was about 11. Um, and, uh, or so. And then what he also did was after the camp ended, he would, uh, take kids to the, uh, the U.S. Open, which was then played at Forest Hills. And the first year I went was 1968, which was, of course, the first year that uh, tennis went open. And that was just a magical U.S. Open because my favorite tennis player was Arthur Ashe, and he won. Um, but just being there and, and seeing the pros up front, well, the pros and the amateurs, because at that point, uh, more of the players were probably amateurs than pros because that was the first year of tennis went pro. Um, and then I was lucky enough to see uh, Ash win the semifinal against Clark Gravener. And that, of course, was the match that um, then became the theme of maybe the best tennis book ever written, a uh, non-instruction, which was Levels of the Game by John McPhee. Right. Um, that 
which if anyone listening has not read that book, I would highly recommend it. Um, he takes the match that B does and expands, you know, from it to talk about the background of Ash, who I think, you know, a lot of your listeners know about his background. Uh, and then in contrast to Gradner's background, um, and it was just an absolutely fascinating book. Um, it first started out um, as a series of, uh, it was a long uh, series of articles, I think, in the New Yorker, and then it went, turned into a book. Um, but in any event, once I went to the U.S. Open the first time, uh, I fell for tennis, the hook, line, and sinker, um, and I started to play more and more. Um, and then I was uh, lucky enough to be taught by a gentleman named Bill Weisbuck, who uh, was a very fine tennis teacher on Long Island. And um, he was, you know, old school, um, but he was a huge believer in, in teaching fundamentals. Um, he, he was not too, um, he, he, he didn't give you a lot of compliments unless you really did it correctly. Um, and it took a long time for him to actually tell me that I was doing well. Um, but he was, he was a very good, another, a really good teacher. Um, and something that was interesting, he had taught Budge Patty, um, who had won Wimbledon and, uh, French Open. And, you know, I never knew that he taught Budge Patty. He never mentioned it in all the years I took, I took lessons from Bill for maybe four or five years. Wow. He never mentioned. And, you know, can you imagine a pro today teaching someone who won Wimbledon and, and uh, and the French are not mentioning it. The only reason I ever found out was um, I picked, uh, he, uh, Bud Patty wrote a tennis book and he talked about how his teacher was Bill Weisbuck. Um, but in any event, I was very lucky to have Bill um, as, as my, as my teacher. And then I just started to work harder and harder on my game. Um, and eventually started to play in the, um, in the Eastern tournament. Um, and, uh, so I was lucky to have Larry and then Bill as, as and Bill as my main teacher. So 1968. Um, when when what year did you graduate from high school? Uh, 1974. 1974. Big year in tennis. Jimmy Connors. Yep. Won three Grand Slams. They didn't allow him to play the French. With uh, correct. You uh, also trained under Dr. Alex Mayer, whose sons both were in the top 10 in the world, Sandy and Gene, correct? Yeah. So, um, you know, another, I think, outstanding uh, quality to Bill Weisbuck was he wasn't afraid to um, have his students have the benefit of other teachers. And so Alex ran a tennis camp in Mount Freedom, New Jersey, um, at a school that during the um, non-summer months was uh, like a military academy, but for high school students. Uh, they had a bunch of clay tennis courts, and uh, Alex, uh, who, as you mentioned, his two sons eventually became, both became top 10 in the world, Alex and, and uh, Alex Jr., known mostly as Sandy, and uh, Jeannie Mayer. And uh, Alex ran a really, he was, he was old school beyond old school. Uh, he, but he was a great, he was a really, really good tennis teacher. Um, and he ran a kind of a no nonsense camp. Um, in the morning you would, uh, after breakfast, 
Uh, he would gather all the campers and you would have the stroke of the day and he would demonstrate it to everybody on a, on a court. And then every camper had to hit four or five balls in front of Dr. Dr. Mayer, who was, he was a doctor. Uh, and um, he, if you didn't do it right, he chewed you out in front of the entire group of people. Uh, but he, under his, underneath it, he was a caring guy. Um, but he was tough. Um, and then um, you were also videotaped. And then you went down to the courts and you worked on that stroke. So if it was a forehand, you'd work all morning on the forehand um, using the principles that Dr. Mayer taught, had lunch. And then all the campers were then shown the video that was taken when we all had, a, um, had the group session with Dr. Mayer in the morning. And then you got a semi-private or private lesson from the counselors, and the counselors were great. One of them was Carlos Gaffi, who became, you know, on his own, a fantastic tennis coach. Yeah. Um, and uh, Alan Frost was there, who suddenly became quite a fine coach on Long Island. Um, and then after that, you had matches. Um, but he was, Alex Bear, he was very old school. I remember one time when we were doing Stroke of the Day, um, some of the kids were misbehaving. And the, the stroke of the day was done on a court that was on a little hill. And um, he made, and, and there was a kind of a dirt road that went from the, the, the top court down to the other courts. And he made all the kids who were misbehaving crawl down on their knees um, to, the, to play on the, on the lower court. Um, so he was tough, but he was a really good tennis man. He knew um, how to um, put your game together. Um, not just only the strokes, but how to, how to, how to put your game together. And he also was like a big believer. He didn't even teach the first serve. He only taught the second serve because he thought the first serve for most people should be a variation on the second serve. You know, your first, you know, the great second serve is, is the basis for a really solid tennis game. Um, so he was, he was, he was great. And I really improved a lot when I was at the camp. He had a lot of other good campers, um, very highly ranked Eastern juniors who he taught. So it was a great environment um, uh, to learn. He was a Hungarian, correct? Correct. Yeah. The, 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 the camp colors were the colors of the Hungarian flag. Um, but I have, um, and he was tough. I mean, he used to send report cards uh, back to the parents. And I remember there was, I, I went all eight weeks. And after the first four weeks, my parents got a report card that I hadn't been working as hard as I had the prior year in the camp. Um, and that um, I needed to work harder on my game to go from, as he described it, pretty good to good. Um, so uh, it was old school, but it was always done because he cared. Um, so I have very fond memories of, of, of him as a teacher as well. Oh, the report card, that's a good way to sum up uh, old school is, you know, yeah. sending the report to the parents and the parents wanting to hear that, you know, you need to work harder. And then on yeah. Long Island, that's a happening place uh, at that time, Harry Hopman was there. So you worked at yeah. Washington too. Yeah. So um, Bill Weisbuck, my original teacher, actually had been at Port Washington and he had a falling out with the owner, um, Ty Zausner. Um, and so uh, I was with Bill for a long, long time. Um, but by the time I got to be a senior in high school, um, my game had progressed uh, to the point where. I really, you know, I really did need to go to the Fort Washington program to teach, to really further progress. Um, so I did go my senior year in high school, and Harry, the legendary coach Harry Hoffman was the um, 
was the head of the program. And he uh, brought the famous two-on-one Australian drills to uh, Fort Washington. Um, and so uh, on, I think it was on the Friday night program, uh, I played for two hours with some good players, and we did two-on-one drills, and then we played points. But also what Fort offered was you could play on, on open court time. And being in New York, being able to play in the winter um, was really critical to your, to your progress because you need to obviously play a lot to become good in tennis. And so after school, I would go down and play on the open courts. Uh, but um, Harry also would uh, have a court where he would, the kids who came down, he would, you know, rotate kids and have them come on his court. There wasn't any charge. Um, and he would uh, personally work you out doing two-on-one drills. And that was an incredible experience. Um, for those who don't know it, uh, in addition to being a legendary Davis Cup coach, Carrie was a great player himself. I think he got to the quarters of uh, the U.S. Nationals, that, which then became the U.S. Open a couple of times. And even though he was older at that point, he could run the two-on-one drill like he was amazing. He could put the ball on a dime so that he would hit the ball just far enough away from you that you could still get it if you used great effort. Um, and so after five minutes where you were the one against the two, you were completely spent. The other thing I remember is I remember doing with him and I was just kind of blasting every ball and he took me aside and he said, Ed, when you do these drills, you need to use your variety of shots. Use it as an opportunity to not only hit the ball hard, but to also use your chips, your lob, uh, top spin lob, underspin lob. Um, so that actually helped me a lot, too, to help develop some variety in my game. Um, so it was a great pro, um, and uh, a lot of really terrific players were there at the time. Uh, and that really helped my game as well. Through that experience, that's where you met John McEnroe? Yeah, exactly. So I was in 12th grade, and John was in 9th grade. Um, he was a 9th grader at the Trinity School. And he lived in Douglaston, and I lived in Great Neck, which is the t- Great Neck and Douglaston are towns right next to each other. So I had my driver's license. So I used to give John lifts back from Port Washington with some frequency. Um, and we, but we played. Um, and the interesting thing, a few stories about John. Um, well, I was in 12th grade; he was in ninth, and uh, we would play and we would play in practice, and he would usually win. Uh, on occasion, I might win. Um, but you know, the matches were competitive in practice. But then I played in a match. Um, there was an internal tennis tournament at court that Harry Hopman used to, on Sundays, uh, have internal, you know, within Fort Washington Tennis Academy tournament. But you took it seriously like a USDA tournament. And I played McEnroe in a match, and there was just no comparison about, uh, to his practice. He was so much better in a match. In practice, I used to try to at that point, his forehand was a little bit weak, and I used to jump on his forehand and come to net. Uh, and then when I, I played in the match, and all of a sudden his passing shots were fifty percent better, um, and he just he pretty much trashed me um, in the match. Um, and it was, you know, it, it, I don't think it ever changed for him. I, you always hear stories about McEnroe not being that great in practice. You know, when I say relatively not great, he's always good, um, but in a match, he was just three times better. He's just a phenomenal competitor uh, when it came to Matthew's life. Well, we come back, um, to, we come back to McEnroe. I know uh, you went to Stanford Law. I want to 
talk about Macro and Stanford and Stanford tennis, but tell us about uh, your progression from junior tennis to college tennis. Yeah. So um, by the time I beat my last year in the 18 in the East, um, I was ranked, I think, eight in the East. And so I was able to play in the national junior circuit. And I played at then the national hard court for curling games. The clay courts were in Louisville. And then there was the Western, the Springfield, Ohio. And then I was lucky enough to play in Kalamazoo, uh, which, you know, it was a great, great experience. You know, back then, um, parents didn't travel with you. You you went to the tournament. Like, for example, in Louisville, we stayed at Stellamine uh, Junior College. Uh, you, you bumped with somebody. Uh, someone had a car and you would drive to the next tournament. Um, we, we stayed in the dorms uh, in college in Springfield, and we stayed in the dorms in Kalamazoo. And I, I believe at Kalamazoo, there was only one parent who actually came to the tournament. It was uh, Howie's and Dan Linusky's father came. I uh, remember that. But other than that, there were no parents at all. There were some college coaches who came. Um, and it was just, a, it was actually a great experience because I was on my own. I was responsible um, in some sense for myself. Um, and it was actually a really good preparation for being away in college. Um, and so that was, was a great experience. And then um, I went to Swarthmore College, which is uh, a Division three school. Um, outside of Philadelphia, and they they had a, quite a good team, um, and that attracted me to it. Um, this is a good academic school, so um, that also appealed to me. The coach, Bill Cullen, was uh, a very fine player himself. He won the ACC in singles when he played for number one for Wake Forest. But more importantly, they're just a great group of, of friends that I met at, uh, at the school, uh, friends to this day. Um, was just talking earlier today to my um, my best buddy from uh, Swarthmore, Jay Levinson, but super friendly with a bunch of the other guys on the team. And in 77, we won the NCAA Division Three due to not me, due to the efforts of the top four guys. And then my senior year, um, I was, uh, was lucky enough to become a Division Three All-American. Um, and that was something that... Um, you know, it was kind of a culmination of the work I had put in. You know, I never became a great player, but I felt good about, you know, what I was able to do with whatever talents I had. Oh, um, anytime you're national champion, even if it's in tiddlywinks, it's not easy. And then to be an All-American. Did you have the same college coach all four years? I did. I did. Um, I will say, again, I've been very lucky that, uh, we didn't play as well in my junior year, even though we did win the title. Again, the, the workhorses were the top four guys in that team. Um, and then uh, I hooked up with a guy named Paul Linner, who was a um, coach at Hofstra, and he was just a fabulous coach. He had, believe it or not, he had been the ba- head basketball coach at Hofstra, um, and he just understood athletics. And uh, he was a fantastic coach for me. Uh, and I really improved. It was like things like he would tell me, hey, when the guy's got you on the run and you're in trouble, cut down your backswing because you're in an inherently unstable situation. So you need, you need to reduce your variables when you're, when you're doing that. And he was very encouraging, great guy. Um, and then he moved to Florida and was the number one um, in like the 70 and over in, in or 65 and over in Florida. So he was a terrific player. He, he was number two in the juniors 
behind Dick Savage way back in the day in the East. Uh, but he was a fantastic coach, and I attribute my progress in my senior year to him. So again, I've been very, was very, very lucky to always have good mentors and teachers along the way. And honestly, very lucky to have parents who supported my tennis journey. Um, I was, you know, I was fortunate. My dad was a, you know, a successful attorney and I was able, he was able to, you know, afford that for me. And, um, that is something that kind of, I love tennis so much that, uh, I'm sure we'll probably get to it. Um, I, uh, always said to myself, well, I was lucky enough because my dad, you know, was able to, to pay for tennis lessons and all that. Um, but a lot of people can't. So, uh, I, you know, feel very passionately about trying to bring the sport to people who don't necessarily have those means to be able to, um, to play tennis. Yeah. We certainly need to touch upon the nonprofit, the NJTL. I know I was, um, fortunate to go spend a weekend with your team. Um, but yeah. after Swarthmore, you went straight to Stanford Law? Well, yeah, a little bit of yes and no. Um, I had taken a semester off to play um, in my, what should have been my um, fall season, my senior year. I played tennis tournaments down in Florida, played the Florida men's circuit. Um, that actually really helped my game as well, in addition to Paul Leonard's help. And so um, I had to finish, so I, I played this in the spring for the team. Because there really wasn't much of a fall season uh, back then for college tennis, and um, so I had to finish up at Swarthmore in the um, fall of '78. Uh, yeah, I think I have that right. Um, so um, I actually uh, had some time between then and law school, and I um, got a teaching job. Believe it or not, teaching tennis in Belgium, um, uh, and um, that was the uh, the the, the Swarthmore tennis coach, my coach, left to go to Brown, and there was a new coach at Swarthmore, Mike Mullen, who was a great tennis coach and played number two for Berkeley. And Mike had been the, the pro at this club in Belgium, and he said, Ed, you want to do it? I mean, it would never happen in today's world, right? But I went over there, and I was, believe it or not, even though I just graduated college, I was a head tennis pro um, at this uh, tennis club in, in Oysen, Belgium. Uh, oh, beautiful you- restaurant. Did you teach in uh, French or Flemish or English? <laughs> I learned enough. It was a part of uh, Belgium that had been Germany until the Treaty of Versailles. Um, and uh, it was uh, taken away from Germany um, and given to Belgium, that part of Germany. So many of the people actually spoke German. Um, and I learned a little bit of German. Um, but unlike the States, um, they, you know, back then, lang- language in Europe has always been very seriously taught in school. Um, and so almost all the kids could speak English. So I was kind of spoiled. I was able to, to basically get by on, on just a little German and um, very well, I would emphasize, um, and basically able to teach in English. Did you, um, play, uh, did you play club tennis in Europe when you were there? Uh, no. I did not. Um, they had a big tournament at the club, and I played in that. That uh, people from all over came. Um, they had some very good men players and guys that used to be on the circuit. Um, a couple of guys who had played in the French Open played in the, in the men's division there. Um, but uh, no, I did not play club tennis there when I was there. So with Stanford, when you were there, did you have any time to uh, 
hang out and watch the Stanford tennis team? Men and women both successful? Oh, yeah. So, right. After Swarthmore, I went to um, Stanford Law School. um, And, uh, well, first semester of law school was pretty rough. Um, I kind of got the hang of it first semester to some degree. And so I did have time for tennis and to watch tennis. And and, uh, at that time, Dick Gould was the tennis coach at uh, Stanford. And they had an unbelievable team. Um, Tim Mayotte was the number one player um, one of the years that I was at the law school. Um, and Tim, by the way, is a very friendly guy. I got to you know, know him a little bit. Um, terrific, terrific guy. Um, Jimmy Gerfine, who got the finals of the NCAAs, was, was there. Uh, Peter Renner, who got the finals of the singles of the NCAAs, was there. Um, so two of the three years that I was at the law school, the Stanford tennis team won the NCAAs. And was, was McEnroe there when you were there? He had already, um, he had already, um, he only played there one year. One year. Okay. Yeah. And, um, what was interesting about Dick Gould is everything was focused on winning the NCAAs, And he was very explicit about it. You know, our goal is to win the NCAA. Um, and you might say, well, that created some pressure on the guys, but you know, these were all experienced, terrific players. Um, and the whole season was geared to peak for the NCAA tournament. Um, and so, uh, you know, he could work on technique, but I think his, his greatest skill was just being able to know the right buttons to push for the kids and to get them playing their best when it mattered the most. Um, but I used to go and watch the dual matches um, when they played UCLA, uh, USC, Berkeley. Um, and there were some great, you know, great, great matches um, that I got to watch um, the dual matches uh, when I was there. And they also got the, um, you know, they had a ton of tennis courts there. And there were some guys at the law school who I played with. Uh, one of the, my classmates played for Berkeley. Um, so I got to keep up my tennis when I was uh, at Stanford. So um, it was a great experience. And I also met some great lifetime friends when I was at the law school as well. And um, with your career as a lawyer, have you made time to play tournaments? Did you play any of the age group tournaments? Um, I would say not, I did not play the tournaments. What I did do for years and years was um, I joined the, like a local swim and tennis club. Uh, and every Wednesday night, the clubs would play other clubs. And so I played for my club, uh, it was on two or three different clubs through the years. And I, played every Wednesday night uh, doubles. And it was very, very good tennis. Uh, a lot of guys who played in college um, played uh, in in this league. Um, so uh, I, you know, if you're a competitive tennis player, you don't like, you, you want to play well. So even though it was only once a week where you played on the team, I would work on my game the, as much as I could uh uh, during the week so that I could feel, feel, feel that I could compete reasonably well in, in this kind of inter inter club, uh, uh, league. So I did play competitive tennis. It wasn't USDA tournament, but it was, you know, competitive tennis. Ed, with your career as a lawyer, how much is, did you draw from your background as a player? Your background as a player, as a competitor must've helped you with, uh, being a lawyer. Yes, I, you know, I think it, it did. Um, 
when particularly um, maybe younger in my career, when you, you get into some tough negotiations and just tennis teaches you, I, you know, I, I, I took me a long time as a, as a, as a player to conquer my um, temper um, and emotions. Um, and eventually I did. Um, and just being able to learn, you know, the emotional control of um, competing and keeping your emotions helped me um, when I was an, an attorney and to be able to um, negotiate but not let my emotions take, you know, get the best of me and look at things in a kind of clear-eyed fashion. Um, and just the, the whole experience of what it's like to have to work at your craft. Um, uh, I learned from definitely my tennis helped me a great deal there and to deal with the frustration. Um, you know, I was a good player. If you want to say I was a good player, maybe I was a good player. Um, but I certainly wasn't a great player. Um, but I had to work hard for whatever I was able to achieve. And, uh, so I did learn, I think the, the lessons of, um, you know, working hard and, even if you work hard, it, it, you don't always get rewarded, but you're always trying to work towards a goal. And in, in the law, it was to become an, an, you know, accomplished in my field to the extent I could be. Um, and it, and so, yes, I think tennis really, really did help a lot. It also helped because it was, a, um, you know, I, I joined the firm uh, after practically four or five years, I, I joined the firm. I was the fifth lawyer to join. And uh, it was a, a firm that only started a year before. And uh, we really had to work really, really hard to make the firm a, a success. Now we have like 65 or 70 lawyers at the firm. But it was honestly, it was seven days a week of working hard as an attorney. And being able to have tennis as an outlet where I could just do something not for law, and just throw myself into something I truly love um, was just really great um, because I was able to bring myself away from something I was really working on intensely and do something else that, that I truly love. Um, and I was able to just kind of not think about work in those couple hours that I might be on the court a few times a week. Um, so tennis was really helpful to me in that regard as well. And you're, Finishing up your career, you're about to retire. Yeah, um, I um, this will be my last year as a partner at the firm. Um, I might do some consulting slash the what they call counsel uh, next year. That's to be determined. But um, this is my uh, last year um, as a partner at at the law firm. So, how many years did you practice law? Uh, from 1982 to today. Wow. Congratulations. With uh, You've been a hobby coach, a volunteer coach, pretty much throughout your uh, time, though. You've, you've found time to teach tennis. Yeah. So, you know, again, just because I love the game so much and I wanted to, you know, have other people have the experience with it. So um, I have two children. My son, uh, Will, um, I taught tennis, too, and he liked tennis. Um, uh, and uh, But I started teaching some kids. Um, in the local town that we live in, uh, because I, you know, quickly realized that um, it would be better for my son to be in a, with other kids rather than having him his dad tell him what to do. Um, and some of the, uh, and so I started teaching other kids uh, in town, and and 
few of them went on to, you know, play in the New England tournaments and a few of them, some of them went on to play in college and I uh, helped them develop their game. Uh, and I just started then working as my son got older and played in high school. I started working with the, the high school kids in town uh, and expanded that. Um, and then I got an opportunity to, uh, was introduced to a um, NJTL, um, Norwalk Grassroots Tennis and Education, which is now Norwalk Stanford Grassroots Tennis and Education. And that was maybe about 13 years ago. And um, I've devoted a lot of my sweet time uh, to that organization, working with kids. And um, the, the basic purpose of the organization is through tennis and life skills um, to give kids a foundation for success, both on, on, in tennis, but also in the classroom and in life. Um, and uh, I, you know, everyone finds their calling in life um, to try to help. And it's just this became my calling, trying to help the organization. And uh, I did it, you know, a great deal um, on the weekend. And now that I, I'm not as active in my practice, um, I go down there um, many days during the week to um, do volunteer coaching to um, on the court to help. Um, I was also on the board of directors for a long time, uh, and my wife became quite involved in the organization. So it 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 was something that I fell in love with, um, and uh, you know, everyone has to find their path to try to help. And I was lucky enough to find an organization that gave me an opportunity to 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 take my love for tennis and hopefully help some kids. And is your wife? Did she play as well? No. No, I, I always say um, my toughest student was my son, and then my daughter came along, and she proved to be even, you know, she, she was fell in love with running, So, and she still runs to this day. She runs some marathons, and she ran, she was a very good high school runner, and so, but I taught her tennis, and she still, you know, has nice strokes, and she plays. Um, I tried teaching my wife. Um, that was probably the hardest battle, um, so my wife doesn't really play. Um, she stays in shape otherwise and she loves to watch tennis and she used to watch my matches but um she does not really play but but she was the president charity that i've been involved in the grassroots um so she got involved in that way on the you know kind of the um running the organization side well coming back to your childhood idol of arthur ash his his advice was never teach your spouse (laughs) arthur was a very wise man with um, facilities. <laughs> what do you do for facilities? You have to rent indoor courts. You have to raise money for that. Yeah. So, um, in the outdoor, uh, in, in, in when the weather is good, uh, we had a, a very successful capital campaign um, that uh, we raised uh, a fair amount of money, and then went and also uh, the town, uh, the city of uh, Norwalk, put in money, and the USDA put in money. And uh, uh, Alan Rippey uh, Foundation put in money, um, and we raised enough money to build six beautiful um, park full-size uh, uh, courts. And we have two small courts um, for the little ones. Um, and we they put in what they call post-tents and concrete courts, um, and um, which are designed to not crack. Um, and they've been holding up beautifully. 
So we have great outdoor facilities. Indoors is tougher. We do have to rent courts. Um, and yes, we need to raise money every year to, for that. Um, and uh, that is a challenge uh, in developing kids in the program because if you only play once or twice a week, it's tough to really get that much better in the winter. Uh, but we do what we can do. And there's some uh, clubs that, uh, around here that donate uh, time to us. Um, uh, Stanford, you know, Solaris and other uh, Four Seasons and uh, other clubs that I should be remembering. Uh, uh, Chelsea Piers and other, uh, they do donate some courts, but we also have to rent courts as well. Um, so it is a challenge, uh, but we do the best we can. Oh, that's great. It's a great service that you've provided. Very admirable. With um, being a writer, but before you were a writer, you were a reader. Tell us a little bit about your tennis library. What are some of your favorite books? Right. So, you know, going back to Larry LeBeau, who first was my first kind of inspiration, he loved tennis books. Um, and so I kind of got the bug. And so over the years, I've bought uh, or you know, read, purchased and read, I don't know, maybe I have a few hundred tennis books. Um, uh, I guess my first one I really delved deeply into was Tilden's Match Play and Spin of the Ball and also How to Play Better Tennis. Um, and I think there's still things that are relevant in Match Play and Spin of the Ball. Remember, one of his phrases was, spin means control in tennis. And we certainly see that today with all the top spin in, in today's game and you know, enhanced by the string. Um, but I really uh, love uh, that book. I, um, Ed Faulkner's book on, on teaching tennis is, is, was really, really good. Um, there's just a number of books that um, I, I enjoyed and got, got things from. I would say that reading books helped me more be a tennis coach than necessarily a player. Because it might have, I might have had too many ideas about how to play, um, but I think as a tennis teacher, it really, really helps um, because I can tell a story from a book or an illustration from a book or a different way to teach a, a, a teaching concept from a book. Um, so uh, I really feel that reading about the game and also reading World Tennis Magazine and then Tennis Magazine and about the history of the game. Um, I think really uh, helped round out my knowledge of the game. Um, one of my other favorite old books was Techniques of Winning by um, Layton. Um, and that's um, the first time I read, there was some, uh, Welby Van Horn did a few chapters in that book, and so did uh, Dennis Vandermeer and Chet Murphy. Um, and that's a great old book, and some of the stuff in that book still applies today. Um, so those were some of my favorites, but there's, I'm sure I'm forgetting some that really were helpful to me, uh, as well. Going back to Ed Faulkner, to, to me, that's one of the only books where he analyzed the strokes of club players Yeah. instead of analyzing the, the strokes of professional players. But yeah, Ed, Ed Faulkner's book, he actually, he went to Cornell and he didn't get a degree. He just took classes that would, he thought would help him. Uh, become a better tennis teacher, but he was one of the best known tennis teachers in the sixties. There was Jim Layton, yeah, well, and Cap, Cap Layton, right? So I, I, I have a copy of, uh, of the book where, yeah, uh, Welby had never really, uh, he was part of that book, but he never really finished a book himself. 
Yeah, no, he just, he, 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 it, it was chapters on his balance method uh, right. in the book. And there was actually some very nice, he demonstrated the stroke. Um, and so that was, it's always helpful because most people are visual learners to have pictures of, of, of the stroke. So that was um, really helpful. By the way, Faulkner um, was the tennis coach at Swarthmore for, thir- for like 40 years. Um, I did not play for him, but I only hear amazing things about him. There are people who say the best teacher they had at Swarthmore was Faulkner. Right, even though they had some great professors there, um, there are many. I met several people who said he was the best teacher they ever had at Swarthmore. So um, I was, didn't play for him; he had retired by that. But um, he, he, had, he, had, one who, he had very successful yeah. camps too. Ron Woods, who was the first director of player development for the USTA, he he worked at Faulkner's camps, and yeah. I um, I had a chance to. Uh, meet members of his family, but I never really met Ed. Have you know, read this book. We used his book uh, um, in the course I had for tennis teachers, the degree plan. Um, but yeah, I always heard great things about Ed Faulkner. Chet Murphy, Bill yeah. Murphy, I can remember having a team at the Junior College Nationals and uh, one of my friends was friends with Chet Murphy and he'd retired and he hung out with us every day, all day for the week that we were there. That was really cool. Yeah. But Chad, yeah, Chad he, and Bill, <laughs> they both wrote several books. Yeah, it, those, they, they wrote several books, and I still recommend them. I think there's still a lot of value in the books that they, they wrote. Oh, Chet for sure. The, when, you, when you say relevant, of course, I mean, so many things stand the test of time. Go ahead on Chet. Well, Chet was the coach at Berkeley uh, for a number of years. Um, and uh, Mike Mullen, who then became the sophomore coach after the coach I played for left, uh, just spoke incredibly highly of, of Chet. And he would have phrases like, in tennis, you want to move fast and slow. In other words, you want to do your split test and get in position uh, and do your running when the ball is in the air. Um, then you can obviously take your little adjusting step. You know, a lot of people, when they play tennis, they, they, don't, they don't do their running until the ball bounces. And so he had lots of nice phrases um, to teach. Um, and he, he really um, brought a lot to Mike when he played for Berkeley. And Mike took that to, and was a great coach at Swarthmore. So, you know, it's, it's these lines, right? You know, everyone has their mentor and they learn from their mentor and then they become mentors to other people. And, you know, that's, that's how the world uh, ideally works. Oh, all the connections. Uh, I do think that yeah. less and less so people don't really have a tennis, a coaching tree that they're, they're proud of. Uh, but Bill, uh, Chet Murphy, I can remember, he was very clever with volleys. He taught the drag volley, the snap volley, the swing volley, the touch volley. So yeah. all the different, the drop volley. And it, it's true. I mean, the ball's hit right at you. I mean, you have to be able to improvise within a fundamental range of correction. Correct. And then tell us about your, you wrote the book on Welby, but your goal initially was to write a book based on several tennis teachers, correct? Right. So um, I had this crazy idea. It, <laughs> I was working, you know, very tough, very hard hours at my job and um, had two kids. And uh, thank God my wife, Karen, did a great job raising the kids. Um, but, you know, I was I tried to be a committed father, too. Um, and I was working very hard at the, uh, you know, at a law firm. But I just had this 
crazy idea that I was going to try to write a tennis book. Uh, and my original idea was that I would do one chapter on, uh, I, I had a bunch of tennis pros who I had read about and respected from what I could see their results were. And I would do one chapter for each pro. And I started off with Welby because he was getting on in years. And I said, well, you know, you never know what can happen to someone uh, when they're getting on. And um, so I started with him. And I figured I would start with him, do a chapter on Welby, and then move on to uh, other teachers. And so I called him up and I said, would you like to do this? And, you know, I was a little bit nervous because he's a legendary coach. And he said, sure. Yeah, why not? And we, he was in California in Palm, at the Palm Springs at the time. Uh, and I was in Connecticut and there was no internet at the time. Um, and certainly even, well, we would have never used the internet even if there was an internet. Um, and, um, we just talked on the phone and then he would start, he started faxing me. He did have a fax, these long handwritten notes and, uh, I got more and more into it. And at some point I said to myself, I'm just going to do a book on Welby's method. And so I would somehow, you know, you know, put the kids to bed at nine o'clock and I would work on the book for an hour or two before I went to bed and uh, worked on it some on the weekend. And, uh, I would send, uh, you send, uh, chapter by chapter to Welby and he would look at it and tear it apart and make changes and send back faxes and uh, went back and forth probably, I think it took me five years to write the book. Wow. Um, and he took all the photos in the book. He had two young students uh, at the time. Um, he was fully, you know, he was retired as a tennis teacher, but he had done all his you know, great work in, 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 in Puerto Rico and then in his camp uh, on the East Coast. Uh, but uh, he, you know, he did do a little coaching, uh, volunteer coaching, if you will, of some uh, of some juniors. And at, at the time, he was teaching two um, sisters. And he took pictures of them demonstrating the strokes. And we uh, just, basically did it over the phone and um, over the fact. Uh, I did go out to visit him two or three times. Um, I would uh, go uh, during the Indian Wells tournament um, in Palm Springs. Uh, and I actually stayed with him uh, during the tournament. And we would just work on the book during those that, that time as well. And as I said, it took five years to put together. But it was a great experience. Um, because I really learned what it was like to be a master at your craft from Welby. Um, like all great teachers, um, whether it was Dr. Mayer or Bill Weisbuck that I had or Welby, they, they understood the whole process. They, they knew where it was all going. Even if you, from your first lesson on, they, you know, if you kept with it, they saw the whole vision of what, where, you know, where it ultimately end up if you wanted to become an accomplished player. Um, and uh, he, you know, he obviously had that, but he had fantastic ways of explaining things to people. 
Um, and he had, you know, he had his method, his balance method, which was meticulously thought out. Um, and uh, I just learned a tremendous amount about how to teach, uh, as well as just the particulars of his system when we put together the book. So many great compliments. Dr. Mayer said he was asked about his tennis teaching. And he said, well, I think I'm one of the top five tennis teachers in the world. And then someone said, what about Welby Van Horn? And he said, no one compares to Welby. Yeah. I think for a learning the fundamentals, he was as good as it gets. Um, and, you know, he could teach an advanced player too, but his, and that's what made him unique because he was a fantastic player. He got to the finals of the U.S. Nationals, now the U.S. Open, losing to Bobby Riggs. Um, and he got there when he was, I think, was he 19? He was a teenager. 19 years old, right. Yeah. Um, and he was the youngest finalist in history until um, Pete Sampras got to the finals and won it the first year he won the U.S. Open. Um, and so usually people who are fantastic players, when they become coaches, they're more are on the side of helping players who are already developed their strokes. But Welby was that rare bird who was an incredible player, but who really specialized in and loved, absolutely loved teaching the fundamentals of tennis to, uh, to people, whether they were juniors or adults. No, for sure. Welby, um, I remember studying under Dennis Vandermeer for the first time, and I asked Dennis, who else would you recommend? And he said, Welby Van Horn. He said, I think he's the best junior tennis teacher in the world, but he's probably the worst resort tennis teacher in the world. Because <laughs> with, with Welby, why don't you tell the listeners, how, how do those first few lessons go? Say that? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Well, to tell the listeners how the first few lessons go, where you, you're really, it's not like you're hitting a lot of balls. Oh, your first lesson with Welby, you're not even going to pull the tennis racket. Right. Um, he, he had what's called the balance method, but just to think of it as a balance method, I think kind of oversimplifies it. He basically taught you all the body positions through the entire stroke. So in other words, you have the ready position, but then you turn. We now call it the unit turn. Um, but you turn your body, um, whether for forehand or backhand, and then you further turn your body. Um, and then if you, if you step in for square stance and what you do with your left arm uh, and what you do with your hips and your shoulders after you do the full turn and then you go into the contact and then you're finished. And he would have you go through the whole stroke just holding your hips and showing you each position in each phase of the stroke. Um, and you would not hold a tennis, as I said, you would not hit a single tennis ball in that first or, or even the first couple of lessons. And he would show you the body position that your body should be in to be in balance. And he was, you know, very big on maximum effort with the minimal amount, excuse me, maximum results with the minimal amount of effort. And, you know, when you see a beautiful tennis player or, or a beautiful skier or whatever, you know, it's just the beautiful economy of motion um, that you see in, 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 in people who really master their sports. Um, remember uh, Frank the Ford's feature article in Sports Illustrated, but it's really interesting that Welby. Oh, he said he certainly had his followers, but you know he didn't really get connected with the governing body of tennis. He never spoke. I should say governing bodies, the USTA and the USPTA. USPTA came along in 1927, the PTR in 77. But you would think that it would have been mandatory to learn the Welby Van Horn balance approach. 
Because I agree. Yeah. I, I don't to this day. I don't think anyone has shown a better way to introduce the game to beginners. Yes, I mean I would say you know, and I'm not trying to say things are always better in the old days because there are many many things that are way better today. Um, you know, flat statement, but uh, you know his methods were really great. I would say you're teaching today. In doing that, you probably have to integrate, you know, some, you know, quote unquote, fun things where kids are working on their balance, but, you know, relay games or other things. Uh, because to, to teach a kid in today's world a full hour where all they're doing is putting their hands on their hips and their balance positions, you know, that may not be completely realistic, but I think you could do a, a major part of the lesson doing that and just, and then just integrate it with some other stuff you know, that is still helping the kids with their coordination or balance uh, and make it fun. Um, and the biggest thing for any tennis teacher, I, I think, is just the enthusiasm that you bring to the table. Um, and if you have a love for, you know, if you're enjoying the lesson as a tennis teacher, there's a very good chance that your students are also enjoying it. Oh, that's, um, a, that's a great point. Peter Burwash, the late Peter Burwash used to always say that. It's the, yeah. it's the pers personality of the pro. Yeah, with, I think and, with early childhood development, if kids were to be learning how to throw and catch and run and dribble soccer ball, basketball, and doing multiple sports, but just going really slow with the tennis, it would be much better. So it's not instruction, destruction. Yeah, so I, I do think that you, the three E's of lesson, you have to camouflage the, the education. You have to hide the education. So you can be upfront with the exercise and the enjoyment, but... But Weldy, yeah. there was no hiding. It was like, this is what we're doing. No, but, but no, Weldy, but you know, Weldy was legendary guy, right? So he, that helped him to be able to do what he did, right? He was a fantastic player. He was top 10 in the world in, in the amateurs and top 10 in the world when he, he did turn pro. Uh, and he had a legend, he then developed a legendary tennis teaching career. So when you have that gravitas, um, you know, like Lansdorf, I'm sure, Robert Lansdorf, he doesn't fool around in the lessons at all. Um, but, you know, you know, but he's, he's got the gravitas to be able to do that. Um, most tennis teachers, you know, aren't so lucky. And so we all, we, we have to kind of integrate uh, different elements to it. And obviously, if someone gets better and better, you, the mix goes more and more towards just, you know, serious work in the lessons. Um, the other thing I just kind of, I've learned through the years as a teacher, you know, if you want to try to develop juniors, I, I, you have to make a decision that, yes, you want to earn a living if you're a tennis, and I, I always had the advantage I didn't have to make any money as a tennis teacher, but if you want to develop junior players, you're just going to have to devote time to working with them that you're not going to be compensated for, right? You know, if, if your goal is to develop top, you know, really good junior players, you're just going to have to go to the tournaments and watch them play and work with them, and you won't get paid all the time. But if you're, um, you know, if you get your true satisfaction in seeing junior player, your know, player develop their game, you know, that's the satisfaction you get. I don't knock someone who doesn't want to do that, just wants to teach tennis uh, for different reasons. That's great. But certainly one thing I've kind of learned along the way is if you're really in the game of developing junior players, you're just going to have to, you know, 
spend time where it's just you're, you're devoting your 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 time to to the players uh, over and above what you're getting paid for. No, that's a very good point. Uh, psychic income, you know, where it's um, exactly it's, it's just good for the mind, good for the soul. Yeah. Um, with yeah, it's it's you take your work home with you. It's it's it can be twenty four seven. Yeah, well, that was another thing Welby told me is that he would wake up in the middle of the night thinking about how to um, help a student. Um, it, he, he, it, he was just really, really devoted to um, helping his students become as, as good as they could be. Well, there's certainly a lot to be said for being able to demonstrate. Welby could play so well with his opposite hand. He, he used the old Dunlop Max Ply, which uh, McEnroe in 79 was in the US Open finals where Welby used the same racket in 39 but Welby used to have a racket with no strings and he would play the 10 11 12 year olds and of course he would hit right on the the yoke the throw of the racket and come to the net yeah um, I remember asking him one time I said Welby you never ever miss an overhead and they said well, how's how's that he goes well when I was a kid there was no TV and he goes, you can practice an overhead all day long. You just find an over, uh, an empty tennis court and you throw up the lob. You just self-feed a lob and you hit overheads all day long. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he was also you know, huge into backboard practice. Um, and there's we have a chapter in the book um, about just all the different drills that he used on the backboard. Uh, and then he was huge on mirror practice. Um and uh, he said, look, you know, it's, 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 you know, back then there, there wasn't, you didn't have a camera on your phone. Didn't, you know, high phones didn't exist. Um, and uh, it was, video equipment was expensive um, to have. And so that wasn't how you would do it. You would look in a mirror and practice your strokes. And um, I still think still to, to today, Practicing your strokes in front of a mirror is a fantastic way to do it. And I actually came across an article. There's a guy, is it Casey Curtis, who was um, Milos Ramos's, um Yeah, I just was talking to him this weekend at a tournament, the Battle of Boca. Yeah, Casey Curtis, go ahead. Yeah. So, yeah, he's a fantastic coach. Um, and he, he developed someone else who got to the finals at Junior Wimbledon and doubles. So, a great coach. Um, and he wrote an article I came across recently um, comparing Federer. He wrote a while ago comparing Federer and, and the dancer Barishnikov and how dancers practice in front of the mirror. And I think that Casey uses the mirror a lot with his junior players. Um, and you know, you, you, you're able to see what you're doing on your stroke, and you kind of develop a mental image of what it's, of what you're doing. So um, you know, old school can be new school, right? Um, right. and really happy to read that article, uh, by him, uh, and then be able to connect it to kind of the wisdom of Welby as well. With Welby, his students, it was an hour and a half cycle for a half hour lesson. You'd hit the backboard for 30 minutes and he could see you out at the, the corner of his left eye. And then after your lesson, you would shadow swing in front of his pro shop window out of the corner of his right eye. And, and it was just a matter of conquering basics. You, know, you just had to be able to hit the basic shots. And then, you know, from that, you know, Welby's 
approach was from the basic shots you can grow, the specialty shots, and then the emergency shots. Yeah. Yeah. No, no question about it. No question about it. And um, the last couple of years, um, I've actually been a coach for, of a high school tennis team. Um, and I certainly use, and like many high school tennis teams, I, the, kid that, the kid at the top is a terrific, he's a terrific player, um, four-star recruit. Um, but then I have kids who are literally basically beginners on the team and um, definitely using Welby's methods along with things I've learned from you and, you know, other coaches that I've had the good fortune to learn from. Um, but uh, I've been able to, you know, help the kids during the high school season become better. It's just, you know, we only have two and a half month season, but it's been very rewarding. And just having that grounding in Welby's system has really, you know, been a blessing for me and uh, able to help the kids. No, that's great. What the, with the book, um, tell us about the success of the book. I mean, the, some feedback from having um, written, published the book. Yeah, I mean, we, we self-published it. Um, so I think we had maybe did three or 400 copies. Um, we sold it at the Indian Wells tournament. Shelly Casarell, who was you know, Welby's most famous student and was number one in the U.S. and then a uh, very successful pro tennis career and then became the uh, tournament. Basically, he and Ray Moore were, were, were the ones who developed the Indian Wells tournament. They eventually sold it. Um, and um, sorry, I lost my thread. What was I talking about? Just the book, as far as um, readership. Oh, feedback. So, yeah. Um, we sold, you know, Charlie was lo- uh, gracious enough to allow us to sell this book at the tournament. And we, we sold out uh, eventually all the books. Um, and so over the years, we've gotten, we've gotten some very nice emails and letters about, from people who read the book. We've got some very nice reviews on Amazon about the book. Um, and what people have said, um, and I'm kind of humbled by what they say, is that the book really explained Welby's system in a kind of comprehensive and understandable way. Um, and I do think my training as a lawyer helped because I try to be precise as a lawyer. And when I wrote the book with Welby, uh, I really tried to be as precise as possible and kind of saying imagine the reader in my mind and try to use language, which was as clear as possible to explain things. And we also have a, a number of uh, photographs in the book as well to demonstrate. Um, but we, yeah, we've got some very, very nice feedback from people who read the book, including his former students who have said that it's a, a good, true representation of his system. Um, we did try to modernize it. You know, we talk about the open stance and, other things in the book as well. Um, but uh, I would describe it as Welby's system with some modernization um, is how I would describe what's in the book. Welby, I spent time with Welby um, when he was in assisted living here in South Florida. And it was so fun to be watching a Roger Federer match with Welby from beginning to end. And of course, when Welby taught, players played with wooden rackets Yep. And then, of course, three of the four Grand Slams were on grass. And there was, like, say, Wimbledon, where the weather, there's some a lot more rain. And 
England and Australia or even New York. And they didn't have the tarp. So by the second week, the players are wearing spikes. Yeah. So the game was not to let the ball bounce. Everything was serve and go forward. And Welby, um, he knew, you know, he was still his own best critic. He knew in the end that he used the term uh, championship grip. This is a beginner's grip, just referring to the forehand. And the championship grip, it was close to, it was referred to as an Australian grip as well, a composite. It wasn't a full, a full Eastern. And, you know, where someone like Federer, you know, would turn, the unit turn, we return serve, he's set for a volley, he has the options, but then he, you know, closes the racket head. Yeah. You know, Becker, Becker came along and he was a role model for, for Federer. People said the, and that was before, way before they changed the grass at Wimbledon. People would say that you could never win Wimbledon with an extreme forehand grip, but Becker did. You know, he would, but he would, he turned, he had the option of returning the grip, we call it number three, the Braden system, the numerical system. But then he turned the grip towards four, which helped him close the racket face. Right. So Welby was still studying and still saying this, so, this could be done better. This could be done better. Right. That's what a great tennis teacher should always do, right? Um, you, you teach what at the time you think is the, the best way to teach. But if something comes along and it's something better, um, whether you're a tennis teacher or you're uh, a trainer, um, you have to evaluate it and you have to adjust. Um, I remember hearing a lecture by um, Dennis Vandenberg said the same thing. He said, yeah, I, I had to throw out certain things I used to do. Um, but that's okay. That's the process of learning. Yeah, with one, of our, with one of our podcasts, we we dedicated one or two to the late Jim Verdick, and then we interviewed one of his sons, Doug Verdick, and we he he had listened to the podcast, and he said that there's some things that we talked about that when he played for his father that he didn't do. So yeah, you're always trying to tweak and improve. You know, Vandermeer used to always say that too many tennis teachers have, you know, they've taught tennis for 30 years, but they just have one year experience because they keep doing the same thing. Right. In my li yeah. my library with Braden, I have uh, a film of Vic teaching tennis in the '60s, and it's just amazing how much he improved. He used to always say that if you can, someone can provide the logic and the scientific rationale, you just make the change. You say, okay, this is this is this is a better way to do it, and you yeah. you just tell your students, you know, this is newfound information, and we we have to make this change to improve. Right. Well, I think as a Tennis teacher, one of the best ways to become better is to watch master teachers teach. Um, and that, in particular, if they teach at a public facility, just watch what they do um, and absorb what they do. And then take that and try to, in your way, own personal way, make that part of your teaching. Um, and so uh, when I have had the opportunity to go and try to watch uh, various teachers, um, I, I try to do that uh, and learn from them. Um, and uh, I would encourage anyone to, to, to do that. Uh, and you're always, always trying to, you're always trying to learn. Um, and that's a great way of, of, of doing it. If you have the opportunity to see, Pick, pick out someone in your area that has developed a lot of good juniors, 
and kind of just watch what they do. Um, and that will help your own personal teaching. No, for sure. With, you know, I think it's, you know, certainly, you know, pat on the back for, you know, people who go to tennis teaching conferences. Um, I certainly um, spent a lot of time at tennis teaching conferences, but I think you're much better off to actually go and watch someone teach, just go to where they are working and see what they do for three or four days. You know, that's not that long, but it's, it's certainly right. much better than a, a one hour presentation. Yeah. I mean, both have their value, but yes, I would think. And seeing how that master teacher works with different students, right? Uh, a student that is a young seven or eight year old kid who's just learning, uh, maybe a 13 year old who's great. And then a 13 year old who is more playing tennis for recreation, um, and how they approach those different 13 year olds differently. Um, and also similarities as well. Uh, so it's not just the technical information, it's how they interact with the students. Uh, and that you can learn from as well. So you were playing high school tennis and college tennis and heyday, the tennis boom. Uh, yep. what, what are your thoughts on tennis in the U.S. today with you know, pickleballs invading our courts and um, it seems like there's too many empty courts and less people are playing than before. What, what are your thoughts on how to improve American tennis? Well, you know, I'm not going to, have any brilliant insights because it's a topic that people much smarter than me have um, addressed and, 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 you know, invested a lot of time thinking about. Um, So I will just pick out one aspect, which is something I've now involved in, which is high school tennis. Um, When you look at the number of kids who play high school tennis, I think it's you would probably know better than me, Steve, but I think it's two or 300,000 kids play high school tennis. I'm um, not sure how many. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, and then you compare that to how many are playing in the USDA tournaments, and that is probably something like five or 10,000 kids. So, uh, and I'm not the one that could come up with this term, but um, high school tennis is kind of the sleeping giant that we have in our country. Um, and so, I think that if we could get, uh, and there are some very fine high school tennis coaches, but if we could put an emphasis on having you know, better and better overall high school tennis coaches and help do what we can to help those coaches who are coaching become better coaches, that in the long run will really help them uh, tennis. Because if you think about it, tennis is a family sport. Right. I mean, most people play tennis, play because someone in their family likes tennis or encourage them to play tennis. So if you can make the high school tennis experience better, say, for the kids that are on my team, right, and not all of them will fall in love with tennis, but if some of them really in- increase their enthusiasm level for tennis, everything. most of my kids will not play in college, but they, as far as playing college tennis, but they may play on club tennis or just otherwise enjoy the game. And then when they become parents, they will encourage their kids to play. Um, so if we can improve high school tennis and 
make it a better experience for people uh, when they're on the team and help fall in love with tennis in the long run, that will, uh, you know, it will take, you know, it's not going to be an overnight sensation or, or development, but I think that would really, really help um, because there still are high school teams where the, the, the coach is, doesn't really know anything about tennis. You would never have a football team coached by someone who didn't know anything about football, right? Right. Um, uh, and uh, anything that we can do to help high school tennis, I think, will resound in the long run to the benefit um, of the game. I also think what you're doing with your site and trying to get information out on, on you know, how to properly teach tennis fundamentals um, and making that available uh, to, to, to free. Uh, and so uh, someone who's interested in tennis and can't afford tennis lessons for their child to be able to go on to the site and to be able to learn the proper tennis fundamentals uh, is, you know, that is something that's really, really important. I would like, you know, that information to, uh, you know, be as accessible to people as possible. Well, I appreciate saying that. We'll come back to your book. Uh, we've talked about putting <laughs> putting your book um, on the website. We've met with Welby's son, Stuart. But I like the term sleeping giant. With our podcast, we interviewed two high school coaches. We recommend our listeners to go back and listen to those segments. I would like to see where the kids that are homeschooling, that they still play, their parents are taxpayers, that they still play high school tennis. I think it's unfortunate the expression that the individual has become bigger than the program. Now, when you were in high school, everybody played. All the top juniors played high school tennis, correct? Well, John McEnroe played for Trinity, uh, which is a private school in New York. Um, and yeah, it was, it, there was, when I was in the East, well, last year in the 18s, there was actually three guys who were trying number one. Johnny Gross, who then played at Princeton, he played high school tennis. John Mullen who played in the U.S. Open eventually one year qualified. He played for his team uh, and Carrie Lee played for his team. Uh, Carrie then one year I think got to the quarters of the Knicks in uh, Wimbledon. Um, it, yeah, there, there was no there was no one who didn't play for their high school team. Yeah, all these names I remember uh, when I was in charge of Seguzo Bassett as a tennis director uh working with Kerry Leeds. He played at Yale, correct? Yeah. Yeah, he played at Yale. He, he tragically died young. Yeah. Um, but his his family has been phenomenal in um, putting money towards not only Yale tennis, but they have um, a fantastic NJTL-type facility down in New York. Well, there's um, a there's facility named after him, correct? Amazing yeah. facility. Exactly. What exactly. that is in the Bronx or Queens? Sure. I, I've been I've been to it. Their U.S. Juniors were there one year. Yeah, uh, I haven't been there personally, but I know that this facility was named after him. Um, correct. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, I, you know, I think high school tennis is and, is, uh, and you know what you're representing your school, um, and. Uh, I think that's that's a big deal, um, not to be tried about it. Um, and 
you know, I had one student who um, went, went on to win the Connecticut High School Tennis Championship. And when he goes and interviews for a job and he writes down his resume, tennis, you know, Connecticut High School Tennis Champion, that means a lot more to a potential employer than, oh, well, I was ranked number nine in New England or eight in New England, right? Um, so there's, it, you know, you do it for the right reasons, which is to play for your school and to learn how to play on a team. But there can also be other advantages to playing high school tennis, like you become an all-state tennis player. Um, so I, to me, it's a win-win um, if everyone plays. Um, and it, look, see, think about it this way. If everyone plays, then your high school matches, if you play no more for your school, you're going to play a ton of good players in your league, in your high school matches, and you don't need to travel 500 miles to go play, to play someone good. Um, so the more players who are good tennis players who play high school tennis, stronger high school tennis becomes, and the more valuable it becomes for the good players because they're playing other good players. Right, and also, uh, you know, like when McEnroe was a freshman in high school and you're a senior, people, are gonna, people don't need to stop and think about that. When your kid gets to college, a freshman's going to play a senior. I always tell parents, it's the last year 14s, that's the freshman year, and then you have five years to play for. So as last year 14s, when you get to college, you're playing against the kids that are in the 16s and 18s. Um, no, I think that uh, high school tennis definitely needs a shot in the arm. It's, it's to me, um, tragic that it's not what it once was. Um, I lived in Texas yeah. for 10 years, and it was a big deal, a big deal to be, I mean, to play on your high school tennis team. And, you know, then you get to interact with the other athletes. And um, I think that junior tennis is just too separated from the mainstream. They're, they're not around the other athletes in high school. And that's, that's sad. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, part of it is also at my high school, the athletic director is a fantastic guy. And when I was interviewing for the job, he said to me, I care about tennis. I care about all my teams. Um, and he was totally true to his work. And, you know, there are probably some athletic directors who are really more focused on the major sports. And I get that. But to have an athletic director who is supportive of, 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 of the tennis program and, and all the sports, uh, I have found to be just really very helpful as, as a high school coach. And have, he's very wise and he's able to advised me on, you know, how to handle kids uh, in different situations. Um, so if, I would say if anyone's listening and is thinking of becoming a high school coach, you know, I very much encourage it. I would also say, you know, make sure that you, you have the buy-in from your athletic director. That can, that can definitely make a difference in making it a rewarding experience as a coach. I think one thing along the lines of high school tennis is to have the, the players go to practice. I just it's hard for me to stomach a kid's on the team and he can just show up for the matches. Could you imagine that in basketball or football? Hey coach, uh, yeah. I'll see you at the game. You know, Steve, I might only partially agree with you there, which is fine, but not always agree. I, I think as a high school coach, you have to try to manage it, right? It depends on the situation. Um, if you have a kid who's just miles better than everybody else, um, you know, you, you may let him, practice outside a couple times a week and then um, come to practice and, you know, you can 
They can you can do hand fed drills, help him. So you you might need to find a balance potentially. Um, but I do get your main point that it's yeah I would never support just sewing up the matches. No, I think it is important that they are truly integrated into the team and that they are also not only help you know helping their own game but they're also helping all the other kids on the team. That's really really important. Yeah, no, you're, Kenneth, you're right. I mean, you'd have to. You have to be clever to, yeah. not to compromise. When we um, will film someone and say, well, we're going to film you, but this is not um, pertaining to your game. You're an advanced player. You have your own coach. But we're going to film you just so you know how to teach the underclassmen, the younger yeah. players. Uh, I think a feeder system, I do think that not only to have high school tennis have a shot in the arm, but with junior high tennis to have the players that are on the team. And there's, there's only, you know, so many hours in the day and especially the regular schoolers, they don't have as much time for their own game, but yet they, the sense of community to give back. Um, you know, I do think that, you know, throughout the United States, um, high school football coach, you know, they have a pretty good idea, you know, who's in the sixth and seventh grade that's going to be able to be on their varsity football team one day. Yeah, because they have that feeder system. They have little little kid football, so they can play then big kid football. But I think it's unfortunate that there's no system where the kid just is in grade nine and they're just signing up for high school tennis. And there wasn't any. <laughs> not that this necessarily needs to be match play, but there needs to be some connection. Even going to the junior, excuse me, to the elementary age, so kids are indoctrinated and they just they really want to be part of tennis. I totally agree. Uh, back to your book. Um, I know that we have our website. It's free. We've talked, I've talked to Stuart. Why don't you just make a few comments on uh, having your book be on our website? Oh, sure. So, um, Steve, you had the idea that um, we would put the book up on the website, uh, obviously free of charge. Um, and I think that's a fantastic idea. Um, and then I know you talked to uh, Welby's son, Stuart, um, because uh, we wrote the book together. It's, but it's, it's, it's all Welby's ideas, right? People aren't interested in Ed Weiss's teaching method. They're interested in Welby Van Horn's teaching method. Um, so uh, Stuart was gracious enough, gracious enough to agree. Um, so uh, I think it's now just a question of um, putting... The, the book up on the website and um, uh, I think sometimes I've seen on Amazon it's selling for some ridiculous amount of money and that's ridiculous um, I'm really excited that someone can go on your site um, the Great Bay site and be able to uh, read and enjoy the book so that's exciting to me and I thank you for the opportunity to have it on your site oh the thank you goes the other way no, the, I know that the book is a collector's item. I've seen it sold for, I don't know, $150, $175. Yeah. Um, I, I would love to, uh, I got to tell people, reach out from the grave and improve tennis teaching. People need to know the Welby Van Horn balance approach. Say if there was just, you know, okay, 10 chapters and one was, okay, we're going to agree on the grip determines the angle of the racket face. The angle of the racket face determines the angle of the racket path. We, okay, we have to understand grips. 
but then the you, you know the the tennis court itself, just the realities of the court, the facts of the court, you know, the dimensions of the court. But yeah, the one of those ten chapters for sure would just every coach and certainly worldwide, but here in the U.S., I think no substitute for good beginning. So if kids could get a better start, uh, and it's very simple, the parents could um, look through your book and and it would really help out. You, I think sometimes it's um, way, way too expensive to take private tennis lessons, especially where you live up in Connecticut, where you have to have rent an indoor court and you should, yeah. be, able, should be able to teach tennis in your basement, teach tennis in your garage and, and simply get kids off to a good start. And then, yeah, you, no, I think, go ahead. Yeah. It is an accessible system. Um, and I know there's a, I do a little teaching at Four Seasons Racket Club that's near my house. And there's a gentleman uh, who owns the club with his wife, uh, Greg and Kelly Moran. And, um, you know, they, they have found, you know, they've kind of used your system or integrated to some degree into their teaching and, and your system integrates well these stuff. And, you know, you see the results. Uh, and it doesn't have to be someone you're developing to be a world champion, but it's just someone who is, you're just trying to teach the fundamentals of the tennis too. And some of some of the students will take take it take it to the next level and others will not, but that's fine too. Um, so I do think it is an accessible system and an understandable system. Um, no, and, it, uh, Welby's a, a, a definitely a cornerstone. It, with I communicate quite often with Greg Moran. Um, and, and I'm flattered when you say, well, you know, my system, but as you know, it's it's really the big, the, the big three would be Braden, Vandermeer, and, and, and Van Horn. But just, just to talk to you about um, Jim Layton or Ed Faulkner or um, Bill and Chet Murphy, uh, Alex Mayer. There's so many great yeah. tennis teachers that have gone before us. Actually, um, I know you. one time you talked about spending some time in Florida when you retire. <laughs> I was just sent uh, well over 100 books from the Vic Braden Library. And... Um, the tennis channel didn't want the books and there's still some that Vic's uh, widow melody. She just wants to go through them because the author of the book uh, wrote nice messages to Vic. Sure. Um, but you know, that's another thing too, is that uh, the written word, it's just very powerful. I mean, people, I think really to be a student of the game, we're always telling people if they could go and if they could read the, the book Braden put together tennis for the future, which is, the updated version tennis 2000. Yeah. It's very difficult to argue with any points made in that book because it's, it's fact-based. And, you know, I think that's where I always tell people in ice hockey, I mean, I don't think people in tennis have enough of a BS detector. Now, someone like yourself, you, or, you know, from a young age, you met and we're fortunate to meet very good tennis teachers yeah, you know, to be able to tell good from bad, be able to tell competent from incompetent. I think that's where the parent. It's it's so easy for kids. Uh, I shouldn't say kids for for young people to make quite a bit of money per hour, and at best, they're just a glorified sparring partner. You know, they're not really teaching fundamentals. Yeah, I mean, I I don't criticize people for what they do, um, but I would just say. Um, if you do anything in life, um, if you can, you know, learn to try to master your craft the best you can, um, 
it does create, I think, a real inner satisfaction um, uh, in the long run to to do that as opposed to just marking time. Or um, so, uh, I would encourage people to you know try to learn as much as they can, and in the long run, um, I think they'll look back with satisfaction that they did that. No, well put. I mean, when it comes down to you know, some people are just not fortunate to have, I mean, the comparative experience, you know, if you have someone who truly knows their craft, but I think that the idea of, you know, again, a lot of people, they don't know they're giving out bad information. And I think of young people, but it's also interesting, an entry level adult, but a young kid, we lose so many kids in tennis, the degree of difficulty, I mean, pickleball, it's a little bit easier. It's like playing with a wiffle ball versus a baseball. You, you can appreciate that because you started playing baseball or lacrosse. I mean, to be a great lacrosse player is like anything. You have to dedicate so much time, but the learning curve in lacrosse is so much different than the learning curve in tennis. It's pretty much uphill for I mean, to get two young people to go out and successfully rally a tennis ball back and forth. Well, yeah, I mean, look, look you know, we have to be honest about our sport. Um, an individual sport is, that's a, that's a harder sell for most kids. Um, you know, you, you play in our area. Um, in the, I came to Connecticut in 82, and the growth in lacrosse from that time to now has just been phenomenal. Um, and part of it is it's a team sport, and it's just, you know, you're part of a team, and there's an enthusiasm to the team, and, you know, it's not all on you. Uh, and tennis is harder in that way um, because it is on you. Uh, and, it's you know, we all coach kids and with kids with, who have worked hard and good ability, but, you know, they'll play a match and they get nervous and they, they lose. And you have to be uh, an amateur, you know, you have, you have to, uh, I said amateur psychologist, you know, you need to work with the personality and the kids. And, and tennis is hard in that way. Uh, it, it just is, it just is tougher than uh, a, a team environment. But on the other hand, there are a lot of lessons you can learn from tennis. And also you are kind of a master of your own fate, right? In other words, if you're a basketball player and you don't make your, if you don't make your high school team, you're probably, you know, that you're not going to be able to keep really advancing your game. But in tennis, you know, you, you can, oh, there's always a tournament to play at your level. Um, and then if you could keep working on your game your entire life, uh, and you only need one other person to play, you don't need, uh, if you're a football player, you need 21 other people. Um, so tennis has also had tremendous advantages in that way as well. Um, but as, you know, for someone like who, like myself who loves tennis, I have to realize that there are some disadvantages and tough aspects to teaching people tennis and getting young people involved. And you have to realize that, um, but also emphasize the people the tremendous, you know, values and, 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 and it, that people can get out of playing tennis um, and life lessons. So, um, you know, you, you got to pick your strengths of, of your sport and, and work with those. Oh, that's well said, well stated. Tell us uh, one last question: retirement. What are you going to do? Uh, so 
Um, I am going to do more tennis. Um, I'll do even more work with the uh, organization that is uh, here, Norwalk uh, Stanford Grassroots Tennis and Education. I will probably, and I'll keep with the, up with the high school coaching, and I'll probably maybe do some more. I do do some lessons um, at uh, the local club I mentioned before, and I'm lucky enough to have a court at the house, so I do some of that as well. Um, and just work with juniors around here on a volunteer basis um, as well. Um, and we uh, have a second home in Florida, uh, in the Sarasota area, so we'll probably spend a little bit more time down there. Um, but I'm looking forward to tennis, tennis, and more tennis, but also, of course, spending more time with my wife. Um, and doing some traveling. And I have two uh, children who are now uh, married. My son just got married a couple of weeks ago. And I'm sure that we will uh, try to spend a lot of time with them and then if they have kids with their grandkids. That's fantastic. Um, well, we'll have to get, really, to get together when you're in uh, Sarasota. Compare notes. Absolutely. Absolutely. By the way, sometimes on podcasts, the uh, host will ask for some recommendations. There's one gentleman who I've learned a tremendous amount from that I haven't mentioned, and his name is Don Brasso, who's a pro out in California. Um, and he's uh, one of the most knowledgeable people I know. And uh, he had some, back in the day, he worked uh, at Van, with Vandermeer, um, knows a lot about Braden and, and uh he is one of the best coaches I know, uh, and I think you'd really enjoy uh, talking to him. Um, he's out in, in the L.A. area. Um, oh, that so would shout be, out. That'd be great. Shout uh, out. Go ahead. Yeah, shout out to Don. He's, he's you know, he, he isn't all that well-known, though, again, he's developed some very fine tennis players. Um, but he's one of the most thoughtful people I've ever come across as far as, as, as thinking about tennis and, 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 and as a teacher. I think you would enjoy uh, talking to him. Yeah, no, I'll contact you for his contact information. I also think, too, that um, there's too much promotion in tennis. Where, as you said, um, it's an amazing story with your uh, childhood coach that he had coached uh, Bunch Patty, who won Wimbledon, and you'd, you'd never, never been told that by him. Amazing. Because no. again, I think there's just too much uh, bragging, too much recruiting as well. Instead, you know, it's too, I would say uh, too many third base coaches, you know, people want to be at a tournament and hand out business cards. And, and I think that's a shot in the, in the arm for tennis is that if we could, and that's one thing about your book, your efforts with the Welby Van Horn system is if we did a better job with beginners, beginners would stay with the sport. But I do think, too many yeah. times, uh, it's very difficult. It's not. It's not easy to teach beginners. I mean, it does require a skill set, and that's you know, that's one of the oh, a great no by, great byproduct in talking to you is uh, reinforcing well, you know, just your emphasis on tennis education, but then the work with Welby, and then to get that system in people's hands um, because it's 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 a treasure and it shouldn't be a lost treasure. Appreciate. Well, just what you said remind me of one saw an interview with Emilio Sanchez, and he said so a lot of tennis clubs, they they're the best pros they have, quote unquote best pros they have working with 
the really good players, and then they'll they'll have a high school student teach um, the beginners. And he said it should be reversed. I mean, you will obviously would like great teachers throughout, but the most important years are your first few years when you're learning tennis. So the best teacher should be teaching the kids when they're beginning, right? Uh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's blind, you know? blind leading the blind. Yeah, I mean, so kind of perverse that you, you would, I mean, not, not knocking high school kids, but it takes years and years to learn how to become a good tennis teacher. It's a, you know, it's a, the phrase is tennis professional, right? right. Um, it, it's a profession, and it takes a long time to learn. I mean, there are some people who are naturally good teachers um, and figure things out, but as a general statement, it takes a long time to learn how to become a good tennis teacher. Um, Appreciate you saying that. I also think with the Bradenism where, you know, if you, the kid who buys the ice cream cone and puts it in the middle of their forehead, um, I think you, you, you also want to judge a program on how the worst player plays. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's terrible to say someone has to be at the bottom, but um, there is a ladder and you know, that the, the, the players that are not as gifted from an athletic standpoint, that they can still rally. They still can go out and play. Uh, they, I, I, go ahead. And agree. To me, I've always said to myself, look, it's great if a, if a coach has someone who's become a fantastic player, right? But to me, the, the sign of a great coach is that they are able to develop a large body of number of people who can really, who can play, right? And it, play could just be they, they've mastered the fundamentals, or it could be that they compete well in, in their local section. But, you know, if you produce a lot of people who can play the game, um, that to me is a testament of a really good teacher. Because as I said, you know, you can always capture lightning in a bottle once or twice. Um, but if you can get, as you said, someone who doesn't have all that much talent and make them become a pretty nice tennis player, you know, that's really saying something. Yeah. Ed, I appreciate being a guest. I appreciate you, uh, taking the time. I know you said so many valuable things that our listeners will benefit from and we'll follow up um, with the interview you suggested. We'll follow up with uh, having your book uh, be placed on the website. Oh, it, I want to thank you again for that opportunity. And uh, it, I didn't understand why you would want to interview someone like myself, um, but I guess you can check the box for uh, 65-year-old lawyers from Fairfield County, Connecticut who love tennis. So you, you you filled that quota. No, you have a lifetime in tennis. You've played tennis. You've met so many uh, great tennis teachers. Um, what you've done just with your written work, what you've done as a volunteer. No, your story in tennis, um, I mean, hats off to what you've done it's because you've done that um, really out of passion. You've done that out of lo yeah. love for the game. And well, I appreciate that, it. That's so true. That's perfect. Well, thanks so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Ed, thanks. Good night. And uh, Good night. We'll, we'll follow up. All the best to you and Karen. Yeah, thank All you. Bye-bye. Right, All right, listeners, Podcast 105. So many pearls. So many pearls. So humble to say that uh, why would you want to interview a, a lawyer um, on our tennis podcast? But what a background in tennis. We'll follow up. 
Um, so many great points. But again, the, the one thing is, is to, to put forth the effort to uh, have more people be able to read, read the book that he wrote on Welby Van Horn's system of tennis. But listeners, thanks for listening. And Ed Weiss, thanks again for your time. Adios amigos, 105 in the books.